Good morning and welcome back to Nachiyomi. Today we're going to focus on the third parak of Sefer Shoftim. And now we really get into Shoftim in earnest. This is the parak where it all starts. The parak starts off by telling us that Israel didn't really conquer at all. Although when we read through Sefer Yoshua, the seeming outcome is that yes, Israel did do a lot. Here we get the flip side of the coin. Here's what they didn't do. So we're told that they left over the Chameshes Sarne Pleshtim. Those are the five um, Philistine princes. They are in the Gaza area who was, remained. All the Canaanites, all the Tzidonites, the Chivi, who lived in the, in, the, in, the, in the, this is the Lebanon area up the coast, which was supposed to be Israel. And, um, and finally, the rest of Israel, although they vanquished their enemies somewhat, they still lived among the Canaanites, the Chittites, the Amorites, the Prizites, the Chivites, and the Yuvosites. So I mean to say that the picture we're getting here is not a very wholesome picture of conquest. And in fact, the, the, we're told by Tanakh that they, they intermarried. They just, you know, gave it a few short, short generations. They, you know, hung out together, went to the same colleges and ate in the, you know, the same restaurants. And that's, that's what ended up happening. They started intermarrying each other, which leads to our round one of the cycle. Round one of the cycle is what happens is Israel is sinning. They're intermarrying. They're getting involved in society. They start serving Avodah Zorah, really enculturating into the Canaanite society. And God sells them the first time. God sells them out, puts them under the control of a person by the name of Kushan Rishasayim. You know, the name really says it all. You know, Rishasayim, you know, double evil, pretty bad guy. He's from Aram Naharayim. So he's from this, uh, the area of Assyria. Up north, he comes in and he subjugates Israel. And this takes eight years in which Israel are now paying taxes to Kushan Rishasayim. Of course, that's the stage one of the cycle, as we remember. Stage two of the cycle is Israel calls out. They call out to Hashem and they said, Hashem, please, we're so sorry. Hashem sends them a, a, a leader. We've met this leader before. The leader's name is Osniel ben Knaz. Osniel ben Knaz is, in fact, the son-in-law of Kalev. He's the one who won the hand of Achsa, the daughter of Kalev ben Yefune, by winning the area of Kiryas Sefer. So a very powerful man. Spiritually, now we know also physically, succeeds in, in conquering um, the Kushan Rishasayim, pushing him back to Aram, and succeeds in remaining what's called Vatishkota Oritz Arba'im Shana, a 40-year um, reprieve. That's going to be um, a very important number. We're going to see the number 40 as a wholesome number in terms of um, in terms of good leadership. So we need to keep that in mind as we see all the different Shoftim and sort of compare them to that 40. That's going to be our default number of success. So what happens is that unfortunately, Arsenal ben Knaz dies, so we've had you know, eight years of subjugation, now 40 years of peace under, um, under, um, under um, Arsenal, which, by the way, is a good ratio, meaning there's more good time than there is bad time. But now we enter into the next round, round two. Round two is where Israel continued doing bad. They just didn't get the message. They carried on intermarrying. They carried on getting involved. They carried on sowing of Avodah Zorah. So number, the, the next adversary is a person by the name of Eglon. Eglon is the king of Moab. So we're talking in the Jordan area um, in today's map, you know, Transjordan, down south. He, is, uh, he comes in and he subjugates Israel. And they are paying taxes to Eglon and his neighbors, the Amalekim, for 18 years. So we can see now there's an increase in the subjugation. And what happens was Hashem inspires an individual whose name is Ehud ben Geira. Ehud ben Geira comes from the tribe now of Binyamin. He is an Iter Yad That means to say he is a left-handed swordsman. That either means to say that he's ambidextrous or that his right hand is, um, is not in service. He can't use it. So he, what happens is at this point in time, Israel has to pay their taxes. And not only taxes, but they pay allegiance to Eglon. So they send a delegation led by Ehud. They come to the, to the castle, the stronghold of Eglon and Eglon. And, and Ehud says to um, to the king of uh, the king Eglon, he says, "I have something in, to tell you secretly in the name of God." And uh, and the king ushers out everybody else, and um, and 
at that point in time, Ayod pulls out a sword. Now, in those days, they did check people coming into the king's palace. But here's the, here's the thing. Everybody used to be a right-hand swordman, swordsman in those days. Every fought with their right hand, which means that their sword belonged on their left flank. That's how you draw it. But Ayod, being a left-handed swordsman, was a very unusual person. So where did he keep his sword? On his right flank. They didn't check it. The metal detectors weren't doing such a good job when they were checking out Ayod. So he actually had a small sword on his right flank. What happens is, as your king sends out everybody from the castle, from this, from this attic where he is staying, the, the uppermost chamber, Ayod comes close to him and sticks it into him. The Tanakh describes Eglon as being a bal ba, a ba, a bari. He is a very uh, healthy man. That means to say he's a very very fat man. He sticks the blade completely into him to the point that actually, disgustingly enough, some of his innards come out. Um, killing Eglon, Ayod then leaves the attic leaves the, 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 the throne room, locks the door behind him, and makes a dash for it in a very uh, you know, covert way. In the meantime, his guards are standing on the outside, and they're knocking on the door, and they think that the reason why the door's closed is because Eglon must be using the, the bathroom. They finally break in, and then they realize that, lo and behold, Eglon is killed. They, make, they, they, they try to chase after Ehud, but in the meantime, Ehud passes the quarries, enters back into, the, um, in, into Israel, and rallies to the call the people in Har Ephraim. And he takes, he blows the shofar, everybody comes down with him, and he leads the army to Surprise and send and kill the the Moabites. Remember, the Moabites are from the east, so he pushes them out of his um, his territory in order to to retain the the sovereignty of Israel in Israel proper. And at this point in time, they killed ten thousand of these Moabites. They're described as Isha Kol Shomain, these fat, healthy Moabites, and um, and without losing a single casualty in battle. And at this point in time, they regain sovereignty for 80 years. That's double the period of Osniel, a huge amount of time. And in fact, there's no round three. There's no um, sinking back before the next Shofet miraculously comes into place. We know very little about him. His name is Shamgar Ben-Anas. Shamgar Ben-Anas is going to be our third Shofet who, is, um, who controls Israel. He pushes back the Plishtim. Um, with his 600 men. That's all we really know about him. So what we've done is we've covered in this, in this parak the devolution. We cover three shoftim over here and, um, and the reprisal. One quick point to ponder when it comes to this parak, food for further thought. The interesting thing is, is that you have Ehud, who is a man of Binyamin, who now comes into the throne room of Eglon, who's the king of Moab. We know a lot of interesting things about this whole operation over here. And that is, is the following. The Medrash says that when, when Eglon heard that the word of Hashem was about to be told to him, he, he ushered everybody out and he stood up. Even though he was a very fat man, he stood up because he wanted to hear the word of the Hebrew God. Now, in that merit that he had that respect to God, the Medrash says that Eglon, in fact, had a daughter. Her name was Rus. Rus was going to be the scion of King David and the Davidic dynasty. Fascinating. So here you have an interesting play around because we do have another instance in Tanakh, which we're approaching in the parishes of Shavuah, where there is a person who enters the throne room of a king trying to defend a brother. And think about this for a second. That's Yehuda defending Binyamin when he comes into the throne room of the unknown king, the viceroy of Egypt. There he is defending his brother Binyamin. Isn't it fascinating that over here we have the switch round exactly 180 degrees. Here we have the scion of Binyamin, Ayod ben Gera, walking in. And ultimately, because of his word, he merits to create or allow the space for Rus to come, who's going to be ultimately the scion for the king of Yehuda himself. So there's this, this fascinating switch round over here, which we're going to, uh, going to be focusing on, God willing, as we develop these themes, as we go further through Nach. In the, in the meantime, have one wonderful and meaningful day.